This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at Destinations in Olympia. Notes for this beautiful book described. Nicholas Crane is an author, geographer, cartographic expert, recipient of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society's Mungo Park Medal, uh, the Royal Geographical Society's Ness Award for popularising geography and the understanding of Britain, president of the Royal Geographical Society in 2015. And we're also particularly excited to say that he's here today to describe the making of the British landscape. Please give a warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Nicholas Crane. Thank you, Roddy, very much indeed. Um, and also thanks to Joe James. Um, Joe is not on the stage she ought to be. Joe is the person who makes these events uh, for Stanford's come together, and she's a complete genius. Now, I'm going to be speaking fairly quickly because I've got a very long story to tell in only 30 minutes because I want to be able to have a chat to you before I get slung off the stage. Um, now, we're here on this, I'm here on the stage because of, of, of writing, travel writing. Uh, the story I'm going to tell you uh, is mainly set in prehistory. It's a 12,000 year story. Only 2,000 of those years are set in the modern historic period when we had written accounts of what's been happening. So the first 10,000 years of prehistory um, are, uh, we have no written accounts. This is a 12,000 year story and it's a story because of the absence of written accounts uh, that is going to be told for you um, by the landscape, by the record, by the storytelling, uh, the myths embedded in our landscape, in our habitat. So I'm going to speak quite quickly because to cover 12,000 years in 30 minutes, I've got to get through about 350 years a minute. It's a story that starts, let's call it about 11,000 BC. So right where we're sitting here, this would have been uh, tundra, there would have been herds of reindeer, uh, wild horse walking past Olympia, it would have been very cold, maybe minus 17 degrees centigrade in winter. Britain at the time was the northwestern extremity of a continuous landmass that reached the whole way eastwards to Kamchatka in Eastern Asia and the whole way south to Table Mountain in South Africa. This is a modern picture of Glencoe. All the pictures I'm going to show you, 56 of them, are modern pictures of modern landscapes. So depending on where you go in Britain, and I know you're all very adventurous, you will find all of the places I'm talking about. Glencoe in Scotland. Now, people have been in Britain before. So we had this peninsula, this European peninsula. We're connected to the, the continent of Europe. Very, very cold. Now and again, the weather had warmed up, the climate had warmed, and people had come to Britain. Then they'd been driven out again when the climate got cold. So maybe only uh, the people coming to Britain were numbered in tens, hundreds, thousands, not very many at all. Then the window would snap shut and ice would come back in. And it really was cold. We had 400 metres of ice, an ice cap sitting on this place here. Anyone been to Rannoch Moor in Scotland, driving from Glasgow over the top past Tindrum to Fort William, Glencoe? This is Rannoch Moor. The ice suddenly melted in um, about 9,700 BC. An extreme episode of climate change. The temperature went up by as much as 7 degrees centigrade in only 50 years. It was chaotic. So the ice caps melted, leaving Rannochmore looking like this. Glaciers collapsed. We had huge changes in the glens of northern Scotland. So this glen here in Scotland would have had a glacier in it. Once the ice had disappeared, the screes, the, the cliffs collapsed, and you get the rivers forming along the bottom of the glens, the straths, in these vegetated beds, because vegetation moved in very quickly indeed. 
Now, Britain was the perfect place, and I'm sure you all agree, to come for a hike if you're a forager or a hunter. And they came across the land bridge. We call it Doggerland now. They walked from the continent into Britain. And it's a beautiful place. This is in Dorset. We have the red sand of the, of the Permian desert sands washing against the bottom of a white cliff, chalk cliff. The chalk cliffs in Britain were very, very important to our ancestors because it was in the chalk that we had the thin black bands of flint that was essential for making tools and weapons. A land of great diversity. We have rocks in northwest Scotland that go back half the age of the planet, three billion years. Chalk here is one of the young, youngest rocks in Britain. The west coast, very different to the east coast. It's a bit of a generalisation, but for those of you who have been to Pembrokeshire or Anglesey or uh, the, uh, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, northwest coast, you'll be very familiar with the great big cliffs. Go to Orkney, you'll see the great big cliffs, the sea stacks. Uh, if you go to the east coast of Britain, it's much softer, uh, a softer coast being eroded very quickly by the tide, so you get a lot of sandbanks. This is an aerial photograph, modern aerial photograph of Norfolk, coast of Norfolk. But the, the, this um, area I told you about that goes across to the continent that we used to walk across, Doggerland, would have looked a bit like this. Sandbanks, marshes, low hills, fantastic for hunting and gathering. We have mountains, of course. They're not very high mountains by European standards, maybe three or 4,000 foot high. But that was very important as well to our ancestors because if you wanted to make a hat, for example, out of the fur of a wild fox or a bear, you'd have to go up into the mountains to, get that, to kill that animal. If, however, you wanted to uh, have a nice juicy steak, you'd go hunting in the lowland glades for an aurochs, a huge wild cow, very, very good to keep, very, very good to eat. So actually our mountains were a huge help to us. They created biodiversity at different heights. So another asset for us. Now, something else we had were trees, lots of trees. Um, there were so many billions of trees in Britain that there were probably about two million trees for every single human being when there were about 10,000 of us here. So 10,000 about the size of a big village roaming across the whole of Britain. Lots and lots of trees. About 60 or 70% tree cover probably in Britain. Pioneering species initially, the willow, the birch, then followed by the broad leaves after that. Now, um, anyone go canoeing or uh, like sailing or mucking about on boats at all, yeah? Well, um, in Britain, we have about 1,000 different river systems. Because of the mountains up the middle of Britain and on the edge, and because we're long and thin, and we're in the path of Atlantic westerlies, we have a lot of rainfall, and the rivers in Britain are short and they're fast, and there are lots of them, 1,000 different river systems. That's not individual rivers. I talk about whole drainage basins, 1,000 different drainage basins. And they're not very wide. This is the River Wye on the border between Wales and England. Um, and this is quite a big river, very easy to cross indeed. It really matters if you're a forager or a hunter that it's easy to cross rivers because if you're chasing a herd of wild aurochs trying to get your supper, you don't want them to pile into a river the size of the Rhone that's too big for you to swim across after them. Uh, the, the longest rivers in, in Britain, the Severn and the Thames, are, are only one-eighth the length of the longest rivers on the continent. So rivers in Britain are a huge asset. You are never more than kind of five minutes walk from a river in Britain, so lots of fresh water and good places to camp. Uh, we've all got our favourite places, haven't we? This is my favourite place on Hampstead Heath. It belongs entirely to me. No one else is allowed to go here. Um, and you'll have your favourite place because it's where you walk the dog or it might be where you have family picnics or it might be where you met somebody you'd like to go and remember them there. So these are places that are particular to us. And then there are places that we share. Um, 
And there's a wonderful author called uh, uh, Tilly, and um, uh, he has written about these special places, uh, assemblies of rocks, and he's argued that these were almost like natural cathedrals or town halls. This is the, uh, the famous cantilever stone on Glidervac in, uh, in Snowdonia, 3,000 feet above sea level. And, and Britain, Britain's high points are covered in rocks like this. If you go to uh, Wharfdale, you'll see the cow and calf rocks on the skyline in Yorkshire. If you go to Exmoor or Dartmoor or Bodmin Moor, you'll see the piles of tours on the skyline. And the argument is that people used to congregate at these natural, eye-catching silhouettes for reasons not because they were personal places, but because they were shared places. You could imagine the leader of a group walking up onto this tilted cantilever stone and addressing the throng, the people from that particular group of hunters and foragers. So we have the private places, the shared places, and they're all connected by paths, desire paths. So imagine we've got a Britain, everybody's walking. There are no horses you can ride, there are no vehicles, you walk everywhere. So Britain is a, a network of desire paths, all linking these special places. And when these places are known by a certain group of people, you could call them a landscape. So you've got a, a place that's uh, privately important, a personal place, you've got a shared place, and then you've got all the footpaths joining them together into what you might call a landscape. And the earliest known landscape we know about is this one here. It doesn't look very special, but imagine this place here, the Vale of Pickering. That's North Sea on the right there, Scarborough on the right. The Vale of Pickering, that great flat valley, completely floored in, the blue, in a blue reflective freshwater lake surface because that's what it looked like in about 7,000 BC. Little columns of smoke arising from the huts around the lake edge. The very first, the earliest known planks in Britain have been found at, on the archaeological site known as Starcar down on that vale. So this was a, this was a ritual place because if you look in Gallery 53 at the British Museum, you'll, you'll see uh, a deer frontlet, a stag's frontlet with two holes bored in it. It was found in the vale here. And the reason that stag front had two holes bored in it is so that somebody could wear it as a headdress. Would it look ferocious? So you, it's like a human being wearing a pair of stag antlers. And that was found down in this vale. So some kind of ritual ceremonies were probably taking place here as well. So we got the beginning of our tradition of attaching ourselves to places. Um, uh, and there's a lovely word for people who attach themselves to places. It's topophiliac, topophiliac. So we're all topophiliacs. We attach ourselves to places. Not necessarily only when we're alive. Britain's earliest known cemeteries here in Cheddar Gorge, in a place called Aveline's Hole. Bodies were interred deep in these limestone caverns in Cheddar Gorge. Very special place. It would have been quite intimidating at the time. If we skip forward, let's go forward to about 6,500 BC. So we're already 3,000 years into our 12,000-year story, and I've already used up 11 minutes, so I'm going to have to speak faster. The human imprint on our landscape is negligible. We've barely made a mark on the surface of Britain. Nature, however, natural earth systems are wreaking complete havoc. Not only has the ice suddenly gone, and we've got a landscape overtaken by vegetation and trees, fast-running water, and then people hunting and foraging, so starting to control species, probably begin not, not farming them, but certainly starting to control wild species. Nature is, is, is wreaking complete havoc. At the end of an ice age, it doesn't just warm up nice and smoothly. It goes in sudden fits and starts. There was an earth tremor 
probably caused by the the uh, when the ice melted off northern Scotland, the weight of the ice relieved the land, and it started Scotland started coming out of the water. The south of Britain started going into the water. Some would say a very good idea if London went underwater, but so we got the kind of seesaw effect. But it wasn't nice and smooth; it was juddery. And one of these judders let loose uh, a mini earth tremor. And an area of glacial rubble the size of Scotland, the size of Scotland, slid off the continental shelf of uh, Norway and set up a tsunami, a standing wave that came down the North Sea and took out the, uh, the Shetlands, the Orkneys. You can see its uh, imprint on the coast of Northumberland. It was possibly this tsunami that actually severed Doggerland, that broke our connection with the continent. So it would have been a very hard Brexit indeed. I mean, we're not talking about two years, we're talking about two minutes. Uh, if, if it was this tsunami, it would have rushed across Doggerland and we'd have gone from being a peninsula attack to Europe to being a completely separate island. Now, <clears throat> it doesn't seem as if we were very well suited to being islanders because the uh, record of human activity in Britain died away. Some say there was nobody left at all. There were 500 million mammals in Britain at the time, 500 million mammals on this island. So it's very rich in terms of biodiversity, but not many humans. That all changed in 4050 or 4100 BC when the French, they weren't called French then, came across the water <clears throat> with all of their modern traditions. Uh, they believed in burying their dead above the ground in tombs. They believed in farming. They had with them domesticated cattle, sheep and goats. They had with them seeds for cereal crops. They were cultivators. They were farmers. And they also believed... Anyone know what that is? South Downs. Uh, it's a place called Harrow Hill. Uh, to my mind, one of the most amazing archaeological sites anywhere in Britain, not that well known, it's just off the South Downs uh, long-distance footpath, those are flint mines, because these French farmers, when they came across here, they didn't believe in just picking up a flint off the surface to turn it into a, a tool or a weapon. They believed that it was better to dig a vertical shaft into the ground and extract the flint from the seams underground and use that buried flint for their tools and weapons. Very weird. There are 400 of these flint mines across the South Downs. So the people who came to Britain were entirely different to us lot, who'd been here by then for a very long time indeed. By the time the French came over with all their techniques in about 4,000 BC, you know, we'd been, we'd been here for nearly 4,000 years already, 5,000 years. So this is one of the things they used to build, uh, Portal Dolmen. This is uh, on, uh, uh, in Pembrokeshire. They spread, the idea spread very quickly indeed. It only took 200 years for, for tombs, uh, long barrows like this one at West Kennet, Portal Dolmens, to spread the whole way from Kent and Sussex all the way across Britain to the Irish Sea in the west and all the way to the Clyde, the River Clyde in the north. 200 years. So what that meant was that us lot, us hunting, foraging, indigenous Britons were being driven to extinction. And we had this instead. We had circles of standing stones. So this is the Castle Rig stone circling Cumbria. We had places like this, defacing our hunting, foraging landscape. Um, the important bit of this is not the standing stones in the middle, but that circular ditch and bank round the outside, that circular henge form, because the circle was very, very important in our early years of modifying the landscape. Now, a word about ritual landscapes. When you get a lot of these monuments gathered together, uh, you could say they formed ritual landscapes. So they weren't isolated, but on, uh, around uh, Salisbury Plain, you had henges, you had a thing called a cursus, a long, thin uh, processional way, uh, causewayed camps, you had the standing stones, all sorts of different things, barrows. and. Uh, 
collectively, you could say they formed a ritual landscape. And one of the most remarkable ritual landscapes was explored fairly recently uh, on telly, actually. You probably saw it, Neil Oliver uh, and his and friends looking at Orkney. And um, this is one of the places Neil visited. So this is Scarra Bray on Orkney. And you can see it's a very comfy, uh, semi-detached house, this. You've got this. So this is a Neolithic house uh, on the ritual landscape of Orkney, very close to the stones of Stenness. Uh, and you've got a stone dresser at one end, you've got uh, stone beds each side, a hearth in the middle. Imagine this, possibly with painted walls, soft furnishings, very comfy indeed. Now, all this age of monumentalism came to an end in about 2000, 2200 BC, uh, with Silbury Hill, the, the single biggest artificial earth mound in Europe at the time. And after this, we became much more humdrum, and people started to be buried in little round barrows like this, individual burial, burials. So Britain became speckled like the studs on a shield with thousands and thousands of circular round barrows. By the time we get to 1500 BC, we're really racing on now. We're, we're, we're heading towards uh, we're 9,000 years into our 12,000-year story, pretty much. The fields, these are field systems on Dartmoor. You can just see the outline. This, this is 1500 BC. This is 3,500 years ago. These fields are being farmed on Dartmoor. The wilderness is being driven into extinction as well. The horse comes along, the domesticated horse. And the horse is a symbol of power. This is the white horse at Uffington on the, in, uh, in the Marlborough Downs. Um, very spectacular, very old as well. So this is pre-Iron Age. We basically got, a, we got a, 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 an animal that allows human beings to travel faster than ever before. And, and the landscape starts to look more anxious. So in northwest Scotland, people start living in these tower houses. This is a, the one on, on Moosa, the small island of Moosa off the Shetlands. And this tower house is still 13 metres high. It's like a, a 3D jigsaw in dry stone. It's entirely made of dry stone without any mortar or cement. It's got a cavity wall. Animals may have been kept on the ground floor, and possibly peat was dried within the cavity wall. So maybe it was an early form of eco-house, because they may have been reacting to climate change again, because it got colder. Temperatures may have fallen by one degree centigrade or so. In the south of Britain, people moved up onto the highlands, again, possibly related to climate change, and they gave up cultivating and started to focus again on looking after animals in huge hilltop enclosures, like gigantic stock enclosures. And with time, these stock enclosures, we're in the Iron Age now, got changed into hill forts. And we know this was a defensive hill fort at Maiden Castle because sling stones had been found inside some of these hill forts. So they were, they were defensive places. The landscape started to look a bit nervous. So let's skip forward now to about 400 BC. So nearly 10,000 years through our 12,000-year story. And at last, we come down from the hills and we start living in settlements all together, bounded by dikes, banks, ditches, low level. Uh, and these settlements, and they, we know about, uh, of about 12 of them. This one's just outside Reading, a place called Silchester. About 12 of these settlements we know existed, and they were making their own coins. So they were economic centres, and they were trading with the continent. So what these are are towns. These are our first towns. Maybe 50 BC, we're starting to dip our toes in the, in the world of civilization. We have towns at last. So having made it, you know, it took nearly 10,000 years to go from running around in the woods chucking spears at things, to living in towns, this wonderful progression towards civilization suddenly comes to an abrupt halt because we get invaded by an army of psychopathic builders who completely wreck the place. 
so this is the uh, Roman uh, fort on Hard Knock Pass in uh, the Western Lake District. Uh, there's the bathhouse between the fort and the modern road, uh, parade ground up on the hill. And you can be absolutely certain that the poor soldiers in Hard Knock Roman Fort are a pretty miserable bunch. They were the fourth cohort of Dalmatians, so they're from the Mediterranean. Hard Knot is 1,000 feet above sea level in the path of westerly gales, very cold. And they were not being invited down into Estelle on Saturday nights for, with, for a hog roast with the locals. They would have been very, very unpopular. So pretty miserable post in coming to Britain. Now, the Romans also brought with them their idea of town. So they didn't believe in our idea of towns, which is these rather kind of messy, low-lying agglomerations of economic activity. This is a Roman idea of a town, a very formalised uh, alien structure with lots of colonnades and nice smooth pavements, uh, completely uh, unresilient. Um, the Romans only stayed for about 300 years. And the entire, when the empire collapsed, as all empires do, the entire Roman infrastructure collapsed as well. Do you know how many towns there were when the Romans left? We had 100 Roman towns in Britain. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, do you know how many towns there were? None. No towns survived the collapse of the Roman Empire. We went back to living in wooden thatch hovels like this, Anglo-Saxon village. We also went back to building long dikes, kind of Iron Age style, so very primitive. This is Offa's Dyke between Wales and England. It wasn't until 900 AD, when we have a wonderful monarch called King Alfred, that we go back to town building again. This is Wareham in Dorset. And Alfred, to protect his people in Wessex from the Vikings, insists that they all build uh, a network of walled square towns. Each one has a market function, so they're, they're making their own coins within them, and we have the beginning of urbanisation again. Skipping forward to Norman era, this is an aerial photograph of Ludlow, and you can see the three things that Alfred had realised make a successful town. You've got the walls that make it secure, the castle top left, you've got the town walls of Ludlow, you've got the market running between the church here and the castle there, that's the market street, and within the town walls you've got space for expansion. So a successful town needs to be secure, it has to have a market function and it needs room for expansion. If it satisfies those three things, you've got a successful town. Village is much more precarious. There are no abandoned towns in Britain. There are 2,000 abandoned villages scattered across the landscape. This is Warren Percy in Yorkshire, but there are 2,000 of them. And they get abandoned for all sorts of reasons. Plague was one of the main reasons, but also economic collapse. If you have a run of three or four bad harvests in consecutive years, a village becomes untenable, and then you've got that perennial drift from the village to the town by young people looking for bright lights and success. If we skip forward, let's go to about 1500, and the landscape starts to remember entire buildings in all of their intimate architectural detail. King's College Chapel in Cambridge, Lower Morton Hall in uh, Cheshire, three storeys of timber-framed building, completely intact, surrounded by a moat, the small stone bridge. This has survived for over 500 years. So the landscape's starting to remember individual buildings. A quick snapshot. Let's be, this is about 1600. Huge diversity in Britain. This is a Mercator's map from about 1584. We've got Britain on the left. At one extreme, you've got Norfolk down here, completely dotted with towns and villages, the richest county outside London. This is a sketch map of Cape Roth. Anyone been to Cape Roth up in northwest Scotland? So the map maker who made this, Timothy Ponce, written across here, extreme wilderness. Here is labelled a mountain pass, the way of the wolves. 
So while the people in Norfolk are living in fancy cities like Norwich, London has a population of 75,000. There are still wolves roaming around in Scotland. Now, if I had to pick a year and a place for the end of our British wilderness, I'd go for 1621 and that wonderful, eye-catching beauty spot, Dagenham. Um, actually, this isn't Dagenham. This is actually Wick and Fen, but Dagenham, because in 1621, a Dutch engineer from Holland came over and he drained Dagenham marshes and turned it into rich agricultural land. He then went on to drain Canvey Island, very successfully for farmers. Then he went up the Isle of Axholm on the Humber. He drained the whole of the levels south of the Humber. Then he moved south and drained all the Cambridgeshire levels. So our wetland, our last remaining natural wilderness in Britain was completely destroyed and replaced by farmland. This is one of the fragments of the great fen outside Cambridge that survived. That's uh, Wiccan Fen. Now, Industrial Revolution comes along and the pace of habitat change accelerates very dramatically. Here's the River Trent. Look at the way the river meanders. Just imagine, we got the Industrial Revolution started. Imagine you're the owner of a coal barge trying to drag coal along that meandering river by horse. You know, the barge continually runs aground, you're fighting the river current, and the horse is having to climb up and down through ditches, going through hedges, the farmers are going irate. You dig a canal, like they have next to it, next to Trent, constant depth, no current, and a towpath along which the horse can pull the barge unimpeded. So canals were no-brainers, fantastically successful. It took 100 years to build about 4,000 miles of navigable waterways in Britain. And if you look at this little video here, you'll see how quickly it spread. Um, whoops, no, we go back one, sorry. Here we go. So you probably can't see at the back, unfortunately. What we've got here is a timeline at the bottom here, and the canals are starting up here, around Liverpool and Manchester, and they spread. Look at the way they cluster around Birmingham and the Black Country. The canals barely reach into Wales or the southwest or the southeast or the east, and they don't go much further north than Leeds. So the canals were not a system, they were very localised. When steam came along, the railways were a completely different story. Okay, a hundred years to build 4,000 miles of navigable waterways, 20 years to lay 7,000 miles of railway lines. And furthermore, London was at the hub of the railway network. So London, having been left off the canal network or being marginalised, becomes the centre of the new railway network. A final word about where we live, settlements. Um, this is, to my mind, the most successful new town anywhere in Britain. There'd always been a dream since the 1500s, that the utopian dream that as population expanded, that we'd be able to live in these wonderful, spacious, green cities, surrounded by uh, countryside and productive farmland. It never really happened. In Edinburgh, they managed to build a completely new town on a greenfield site adjacent to historic Edinburgh. Spectacular new town. Look at the grid plan of it, and look at the garden square, one at each end of the grid. Phenomenally successful. And not only that, this wasn't just a new town, it was a new city, and it was a new capital, because Edinburgh was the capital. It became the capital of Scotland. So enormously successful. The reality for the rest of us was this. This was the urban dream. Thousands upon thousands of back-to-backs, uh, mass-produced housing. This is a modern picture of Leeds. And this is, what, this is where most of the workers in the Industrial Revolution lived. In about 1840, 1850, our population in Britain was 21 million. Huge number of people, 21 million. We went through a tipping point around 1840, 50. At that time, the mid-19th century, 
more of us started living in cities than in the countryside. Ever since then, we've been more urban than rural. Again, utopian dream. Now and again, modernism tried to reinvent the idea of beautiful places to live. It didn't really catch on. This is the Isacon Flat in North, in North London. I'd say the reality was much more humdrum. This actually is the most successful type of dwelling in Britain. 4.9 million of them. One third of our housing stock uh, is a semi-detached house. Single most successful uh, housing type anywhere in Britain. And you can see why. You've got green space at the front, side access, green space at the back, and the back garden in most semi-detached houses was designed to be big enough to grow your own vegetables. Indoor, indoor bathroom, you didn't have to go down into, into a yard for privy. And furthermore, the bay window on the front, rather like an Iron Age hill fort, you could lean forward, you could observe what's going on up and down the street, so you're in command of your local territory. Phenomenally successful. You could buy one of these for 1,200 quid in Wembley when they were built. Um, very successful indeed. So what of the wilderness? Where did it go? Well, believe it or not, um, I took this picture a few months ago on the South Downs, looking north, just outside Brighton. Anyone know how much of our countryside is not built on? It's much more than I thought, anyway. It's 98%. 98% of our landscape is not built on. Only 2% has got towns and cities and roads and airports on. 98% is green space. The problem is the green space is not always very high quality. Let's have a little fly up Cheddar Gorge on this virtual drone put together by a very clever company called Esri, digital company. So there's the city of Wales. And if has anyone driven up Cheddar Gorge? Yeah. So when you drive up Cheddar Gorge, you're following a strip of tarmac, cars in front, cars behind, lay-by road signs, all the rest of it. It's quite developed, the bottom of Cheddar Gorge. You fly above it and look how green it is. You can hardly see the B road. And because we confine our lives to roads, railways, airports, streets, the kind of the most built-up bits, we're unaware that actually 98% of our landscape, our habitat, is not actually built on. It looks like this. When you get above it, you rise above it, you can see how it isn't actually much built on. The problem, as I say, is the, um, the quality of the green space. So you, you really wouldn't want to go for a picnic on this particular, in this woodland here, uh, or indeed graze your animals on that patch of grass between the M62 uh, um, slip roads. Uh, you wouldn't possibly want to go for a picnic here. You might see this lovely green field on an ordnance survey map, uh, or, or stubble field, but it's not a good, it's in front of Torness nuclear power station. So the, the countryside is changing in nature. In this picture here, we can see they're not farming for crops or looking after animals, but we're farming for wind and we're farming for sun. So the countryside is changing. Uh, it might be technically green, green space, that 98%, but it's not all particularly high quality. The diversity in Britain is, however, completely intact. We have now 65 million people living in Britain, 65 million people on this island. There's plenty of space to go around, actually. 65 million is OK. You know, we, we've got much more space than, for example, the people living on Hong Kong. Um, and we have the diversity. So at one extreme, we have cities like London. London now has a bigger population than Scotland and Wales combined. It's almost a country in its own right. At the other extreme, we have Snowdonia. And let's, let's have a final fly-through in our digital drone here. We're starting above the Menai Straits. And in one single fly-through of two minutes, then I'm going to finish talking, you'll see how diverse our modern landscape is. Because we're starting in Menai Straits, we're flying over the slate quarries, we're going to turn left up Lamberis Pass. And I expect somebody, anyone climbed Snowdon? 
What about Crib Gok? Anyone climb Crib Gok? Yeah, okay, so we're going to fly up Crib Gok in a minute. Uh, you, you won't have seen Crib Gok from Sangle before. It's really worth it. Um, uh, Crib Gok is the most spectacular mountain climbing ridge in Snowdonia, um, not for the faint-hearted. And as we fly up the pass, Snowdon's on the right. You see the, the lake in the, and the road below us. Huge diversity in this landscape, isn't there? Because we started, we started over, the, over the, the, the coastal town, the slate quarries. All of this was forested. Trees covering this entire landscape back in the age of the hunters and gatherers. And we're going to swing a right now and turn up onto the slopes of Snowdon. You can see the footpath. There's the pig track coming up here. That most of us walk up to get to Crib Gok. Uh, here's the beginning of Crib Gok here. And we're going to fly up to the top of Crib Gok and uh, come to rest hovering. Here's Crib Gok. Isn't it spectacular? A lovely walk. Look at that. Best mountain ridge in Snowdonia. And of course, as we go up to the top of Crib Gok, you'll see creeping into view the highest railway in Britain running up towards the summit of Snowdon. Here it is coming to view now. Here's the railway coming up here. There it is, the black line, the railway. And right on the top up there, you've got a wonderful place to have a mug of tea and a bacon butty. Um, uh, so our idea of wilderness is completely changed. What would our hunting, foraging forefathers, foremothers thought of the summit of Snowdon where you could buy bacon butty and a mug of tea? And that's where I'm going to leave it. I just want to leave one, uh, one final image. If any of you want to follow up on this story in a bit more time than the 30 minutes I've just given it, write down the web address I'm going to put up. Because if you look at this uh, address here, this is a completely free uh, tool. My, my entire book, this book here, has been compressed into something called an interactive story map. And you can muck about with a story interactively on this website here. It's completely free. It's just for the pure fun of it. So uh, do enjoy it and uh, fire away with any questions you might have. Pop your hands up if you've got a question, and then I shall whiz between you, move amongst you. Yes, sir. Your famous umbrella, is it the same one you've had from the beginning of all your programmes? Oh, the umbrella, very good question. Uh, actually, um, my, my most important umbrella is the one that I, I bought in northwest Spain uh, when I was making the journey described in this book. And I bought it, actually I was given it by the owner of the umbrella factory in Santiago de Compostela, who took pity on me, because I said I was going to walk across Europe from Santiago de Compostela to Istanbul. He said, you must take one of my umbrellas. And his company name is Keshoba. It's a Galician phrase. And in Galician, that means what rain. And I just thought that was the perfect kind of um, sentiment, motto for my walk across the mountain chains of Europe. What rain? You know, it never rains. So, so yeah, my, my, that, my, that umbrella is enshrined in my study at home. It never comes out. I'm far too sentimental about it. But the, the umbrellas you've seen on coast and so on, um, I've forgotten how many I've got, five or six of them. Uh, two or three of them came to rather untimely ends, snapped in half on film shoots or left on trains. But uh, um, by, I developed a very bad habit of buying my... Well, good habit, really, but my, those umbrellas are very expensive. I, I get them from Britain's most famous umbrella shop in Yorkshire Street um, called Smith & Sons, and they... Uh, 
whenever I go down, oh, Mr. Cranes, same as usual. And it's their, their hazel shafted umbrellas, they're cut to length because they're walking stick umbrellas. They've got a, they're, so they're basically a walking stick with an umbrella up the outside. And that's very, if you're pole vaulting over rivers, then a walking stick umbrella is what you need. Because a normal umbrella bends in half, you try and pole vault with it. So they're very special umbrellas. And I should have brought it along with you, show you. <laughs> Next time. Um, it's uh, 20 years since Clear... Where are we? Since Clear Waters oh. Rising was published. Uh, fantastic book. Um, in those 20 years, have you been back and walked any of that route again? And what changes have you seen if you have? Well, that's a lovely question. Um, yeah, have, um, in the 20 years since this book was published, have I been back? The answer is yes. Um, I've been, I went back to the Tatra Mountains in Poland uh, and climbed some of the mountains that I'd missed the first time round. Uh, I, I went back to the, um, the Pyrenees, to Cirque de Gavani, and retraced part of that route to the BBC uh, on one occasion. And I've, I've dipped in and out of many other sections on family holidays for sentimental reasons. And uh, uh, so I, I think about that journey every day because it was, a life, for me, a life-changing journey. I, was, I spent a year and a half walking, sleeping under the stars, sleeping in caves and forests, entirely on my own, unaided, no mobile phone in those days, no GPS, so just local maps, um, always following mountain ranges and, and sharing my journey with local people, shepherds mainly, but anyone living along the mountains along the way. And uh, it was, um, I learned more about the good sides of humanity walking alone across Europe um, than I have done before or since. It was a wonderful experience. And uh, my experience was that the, the poorer the people, the more generous they are. Uh, and so wealth doesn't do you many favors when it comes to nation building um, in terms of humanity. Uh, and. Um, yeah, no, I think, about, I think about it a lot. And what, what surprised me is that one of the reasons I was attracted to doing it, I liked doing things that nobody's thought of doing before, and nobody had ever walked across Europe following the mountains before. I don't know why, it seemed a very obvious thing to do. And actually, to this day, as far as I know, nobody's repeated the journey or gone in another direction from east to west. So if you've nothing else to do for the next year and a half, is still waiting for a second traverse and the first traverse from east to west. Um, the world's full of amazing things that haven't been done. <laughs> but thank you for your question. Uh, thank you for a very good lecture, Nicholas. Uh, thank you. What I've always wondered was, why did you give up the programme about coast? Why did I give up the programme about coast? The answer is I didn't give up the programme about coast. I think the way television works is that they give up on you. Uh, so you, I, there's no possibility that I would voluntarily give up on coast because uh, I, for me it is, uh, um, uh, you know, I put 10 years of my life into it. It was a, it was a very, uh, it's a transformative um, engagement for me in terms of storytelling about Britain. And I think it did an amazing amount of good. And the coast was always owned by the contributors, uh, by the people who, uh, who live and work along the coast, who you, you would have seen often appearing on the programme. So it's very democratic. It wasn't ever owned by the, the presenters or the production staff. It was owned by the contributors and the viewers who, who watch it. And, um, uh, and it, was a, it was a very, it was a wonderful experience to be able to work on it. And I, I enormously enjoyed sharing those coast stories. And I think it came at a very good time to 
remind ourselves that we, we are islanders. You know, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a very, we live on a very beautiful island. And, um, and I think it's only by um, reminding ourselves about the stories around the edge of it that we can learn to value it properly. And if you go to the edge, then it becomes very apparent that you're an islander because there's a whole lot of wet stuff in one direction and dry stuff in the other. And, um, and in every time we'd go out on a shoot and I'd see the, you know, the blue through the windscreen, you, know, you get that little kind of, that little flutter that you had when you were a kid when you see the sea going to seaside. And I still get it now. You know, it never leaves us for islands, I think. That little kind of flutter of excitement. So, um, no, maybe it'll come, maybe coastal camp. Maybe I'll get invited to do more of them. I'd love to do more. <laughs> um, coincidentally, I'm about halfway through your book, The Making of the British Landscape, at the moment. If I may say so, it's a tremendous book, and I'm Thank you. really enjoying it. I'm, I'm staggered by the amount of research that's gone into it. It must have taken you many, many years. The one thing, if I may say, that I'm slightly missing is in maps to help yeah. me find my way around the various places that you refer to. Was it a conscious decision not to include maps? As, as a you being a geographer, I'm rather surprised, I must say. All I can do is apologise abjectly because, it, no, it was not the intention to have no maps. The fact is that um, you mentioned the amount of research. I've been, I've been thinking about the book for 30 years. Uh, I was commissioned to write it eight years ago, and it took, on and off, it took eight years. The last three years was completely full-time, seven days a week, doing all, all the research. So it was a huge project. And, my publishers were very patient. I'd missed so many deadlines that they said uh, last spring that if I didn't hand them the manuscript, it would miss being published in 2016. So I was left with the awful choice of, you know, really burying myself for several weeks, doing insane numbers of hours per day just to get the text written. And actually, if I'm really honest, I just overlooked the maps. I, they're always meant to be there. And there will be, hopefully, some maps in the paperback later this year. So, no, it was not deliberate. I'm really aware of the, of the absence of them. And it pains me deeply. But, you know, nothing's perfect. And, um, uh, you know, only so much was possible in the time. But it, it does pain me. And, um, you know, the, I, I, all I can say is I was the first person to notice they weren't there. <laughs> Can I ask, as other people ruminate things they might want to uh, inquire of you, where would you send a drone that you were piloting to somewhere inaccessible? What would you like to see, whether above ground or below? Very good question. Do you know what? I wouldn't send a drone at all. I would get these people, Esri, to put together a virtual drone shots. So those two drone shots I showed you involved no drones. No drones were damaged or hurt during the filming. That was simply a computer expert sitting at a desk in Edinburgh uh, using software to make those drone shots. And drones are pretty intrusive. I'm not a massive fan of them. We use them a lot in filming. Um, but in terms of virtual drones, the answer to your question is, I'd love to, um, I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd love to see a virtual drone uh, spiralling orbit around Mount Everest from the Kumbu Icefall up to summit. That would be pretty special. And you could do that. Because those drone shots are put together using 3D satellite imagery. Uh, it's like a very fancy, as we have access to unbelievably high resolution satellite photographs, far higher res resolution than Google Earth. So imagine Google Earth, you know, multiplied over and over again. That's the resolution that these digital drone shots are put together on. Um, but you can make a, you know, those, those drone flights were put together 
uh, sort of virtual reality drone flights in you know, a matter of hours, two or three hours max. If you wanted to fly a drone all the way up Lamberis and up Kribgok, that would have taken days of filming and a huge amount of expense. So the future is actual virtual drones, not, not the real drones. Aha. Um, do you have another adventure since you've done the mountains and Europe? What's next? Do I have another adventure? That's a really good question. Um, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there's one, yeah, there's, there, there's more than one mountain range. I'd love to go, go and walk from end to end. Um, uh, so I'd be disappointed not to be able to do that. Um, and also, I'm very keen on bicycling, long distance cycling. So uh, I've done quite a lot of transcontinental bike rides. I've never ridden a bike around the world, so quite keen on doing that. And um, but in terms of immediate adventures, uh, writing books is my idea of a cerebral adventure. And uh, I always like to have a book on the go. So by later tonight, I'm hoping to have a proposal for my next book finished. That's going to be the next adventure, which I'll be working on for the next few months to get this proposal sorted out. So books, bikes, boots, those the three Bs. <laughs> Well, in hot anticipation of your forthcoming adventures and our own, we're going to have to end it there, I'm afraid, uh, Nicholas. But Nicholas will be over at the signings at Stanford Stand, uh, where you can continue the conversation there and quiz him on any other questions that occur to you. But for now, let's give a warm thank you uh, thank to you. Nicholas Crane for that insightful talk. Thank you.